this week on the Back Table Podcast. It's one of the crazy exciting things where I like recently had a dog. We did an RFA. Within days, the dog is back to walking like he never had the tumor there at all. And um, we can get him into chemo. We can get him into kind of the care that they need without this affecting their quality of life. And so I, I do think that's going to be huge as we start to learn how to do ablations more and, and really refine it for our patients. Welcome to the Back Table Podcast, your source for all things endovascular or otherwise minimally invasive. You can find all previous episodes of the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or backtable.com. Subscribe to the podcast, leave us a review, or reach out to us on Twitter or email to let us know how we can make this a more valuable resource for the endovascular community. Now a quick word from our sponsor. Our next partner has a product I use literally every day. Uh, I started taking AG1 because quite frankly, uh, they advertise with us and send it to me for free. And, uh, and because my friends, Aaron and Sabine use it, but truth be told, you know, I've been taking it for, you know, probably 75 days now and, uh, and I'm not stopping. Uh, you guys still taking it? Yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah. What's yeah. your experience been like? And, you know, I honestly, I, well, I thought that maybe it would taste bad or something when I first got it and I really like the taste. So it's kind of a pleasant uh, drink for me in the morning and I feel like I'm drinking something really healthy. It's really green. Yeah. I mean, it's literally that and coffee. I mean, I don't like Mike, we always joke that maybe there's something addictive in the athletic <laughs> greens itself, but, um, it, my body like, like craves it every day. Uh, and, and it's easy to take, it's a great presentation. And, you know, I, I, I feel confident that I know I'm, I don't, you know, I don't need to eat a salad that day. Like I'm getting everything my body needs. No, totally. I agree. And uh, for me, it uh, is at least partially mental in the sense that like, you know, you, you see what's in this, you read the back of it. I'm like, this uh, hopefully will counteract the, the damage I'm doing to myself on a weekend of call. Uh, and, and I've, you know, I'd say this jokingly, I'm a success story. You don't actually have to be an athlete to get effects from athletic greens. So for me, it's more of an academic greens. Uh, it supports <laughs> mental health and clarity. And you can tell from how, you know, my clarity right now that it's, it's working. <laughs> that's, that's great. I, I love that. It actually helps recovery from a bad weekend call. Not necessarily a workout, but a bad weekend of call. No, you don't even yeah. have to work out. Yeah. I'm, I'm no. living proof. All um, that, all that food, all that junk food you eat on call, and you can at least say, tell yourself, okay, I, I had a, I had a three glasses of athletic greens over the weekend. Like I'm, I'm, I'm okay. No, it's good. You know, it, it's, it's, it's low calorie, low sugar, and to me, it tastes like uh, a little bit like a pina colada without the alcohol. And so, you know, I, I get back on that horse on Monday after a weekend of call, and 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 this makes me feel like I'm, <laughs> I'm getting close to my baseline. I'm getting a little bit better. But to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash backtablevi. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash backtablevi to take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. And now back to the show. I'd like to thank our listeners for tuning in to another episode of the Backtable Podcast. This is Michael Barraza returning as your host, recording in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. It's an honor to welcome our guest today, Dr. Chris Thompson in San Diego, California. Chris, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, of course. Happy to be here. Chris is a veterinary surgeon focusing on surgical oncology, interventional radiology, and, and minimally invasive surgery, which is uh, a lot. You're clearly very specialized. 
I'm also joined by my friend and co-host, uh, Aaron Fritz, recording from Dallas, Texas. Thanks, Michael, for having me. And we also congratulate Chris. Uh, Chris has a new baby. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Chris, how's, uh, how's dad life? It's good. It's different. It's busy. She uh, <laughs> She's kind of taking it easy on us so far. She's a good sleeper, so definitely appreciate that. But uh, it's been good so far. Nice, man. Congratulations. Yeah, uh, yeah, we already did the usual and asked everybody about their weather. It's uh, it's hell where Aaron and I are, and it is perfect yep. where Chris is in San Diego like it is every day. Yep. We uh, went on a walk and already stopped by the pool this morning. Nice. But the, the pool's chilly though, right? You don't get the bathwater pool like we like we get down here in Dallas. Is it, is, is it's it nice? It's kind of embarrassing to say it's a heated pool in San Diego. So despite it always being <laughs> beautiful and 70 degrees, I still heat the pool. So yeah. Cannot complain about the water temperature. Oh, fine. Enough right, with well, <laughs> <laughs> Enough about you. Let's talk about me. Uh, but no, let's 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 talk a bit about this. And so, just for our listeners, uh, you know, I'm I'm super fascinated by what Chris does and, and where this began. Was I saw something that saw a tweet that that Chris had put out about doing a PAE on a dog, and like a lot of other people, I was just blown away. And you know, I, I had to ask him to come on the podcast. I'm really grateful that he joined us. Uh, and I want to hear a bit more about that PA, PAE too, but, you know, just reading your bio, I mean, you are, you know, you're wearing a lot of hats. You're doing a lot of things. I mean, you're a surgeon, you're an interventional radiologist. What did training look like for you? I mean, how did you, how did you learn all of this? Yeah, it's kind of cool. It's, uh, veterinary medicine is great in that you kind of get to specialize in what you want to specialize and you can really drive your training however you want it to go. And so um, I was very fortunate. I've been very fortunate throughout all of my training to kind of meet the people that I've met and learn from a lot of exciting different aspects of veterinary medicine. So it's quite similar to what's done for uh, human, what we call human interventional radiologist. So I uh, went to vet school. After vet school, we had an internship um, and then a three-year surgical residency. And um, residency, it's it's not subspecialized. So we learn orthopedics, we learn um, general soft tissue surgery, cardiothoracics, your genital, all of that in wow. one. But within that three years, you kind of get the option um, based off your program if you want to really dive deeper into certain areas. And so um, during my residency is when I got a lot of my IR training. So I was at the University of Minnesota, so very fortunate. Um, the cardiologist at University of Minnesota, Chris Stouthammer, has done a ton for interventional radiology, um, as you can probably suspect, but a lot of heart diseases in dogs. We don't do a lot of open heart surgery. It's not easy to get a dog on and off a pump. And so a lot of those procedures have gone to IR for um, cardiovascular interventions. And so um, Stouthammer um, at Minnesota has done a lot for cardiovascular IR. So I learned a ton of the basics from him. And then um, very fortunate to spend time at the U of M med school as well. So um, Shamar Young, who's an interventional radiologist, I'm pretty big into PAEs actually, um, and a lot of other things, especially yep. IO. He taught me most of what I know, um, especially for uh, embolizations and interventional oncology. I got to spend a lot of time with him. And it was it was one of the most profound impacts I've had in my training, just the ability to spend time with him, to go through cases with him at the med school. And then he actually came to the vet school and um, would assist with some things that we were doing. So one of the first few cases that he came over for was a chemoembolization on a dog with a unresectable liver tumor. So learned a massive amount just kind of working through those cases with him and then adapting it to dogs. 
And then after residency, I went on to do a surgical oncology fellowship at Colorado State. Um, so that's kind of what got me really solidified into the field of oncology yeah. care and, and really adapting interventional radiology and interventional oncology to my patients now. Right on. So where do you primarily practice now? I mean, you're in San Diego. Um, you know, what, what kind of facility is it? Yeah, so I'm at a, it's called the Veterans Special Hospital of North County in mm-hmm. San Diego. So um, we have two practices in San Diego. We have our southern location in Serrano Valley. We have the northern location, uh, the North County Hospital, and that's the one that I'm at. Um, it's a multi-specialty practice is kind of how most veterinary uh, specialty hospitals are now. So we have okay. um, basically all the specialists in one. So we have uh, internal medicine, uh, emergency critical care, surgery. Um, we have cardiology, dermatology, neurology, all of those specialties in one hospital. And it's kind of nice because I have really built my practice within that hospital specifically for, again, those those kind of big things of surgical oncology, minimally invasive surgery and IR. That's rad. That's awesome. So um, one of the other questions I had is, you know, I mean, there, there probably aren't a ton of people that do what you do. And uh, I'm, I'm curious, you know, what that community is like. I mean, do you have a group of other surgical oncologists and interventional radiologists that you communicate with and share ideas with? Or, you know, do you really kind of learn more from the the, the surgical and IR communities at large? Yeah, it's definitely a mix of both. There's a, a small but incredibly passionate group of inter- veterinary interventional radiologists. So Similar to the, the human side, we have a society, so the Veterinary Interventional Radiology Interventional Endoscopy Society. And through that society, there's uh, a couple of very big, impactful veterinarians that have really bulldozed away for IR and vet med. And so um, there's a lot of people that will do some dabbling into IR. There's a few people that are solely focused on IR um, and really do more of these advanced procedures like me. And um, a lot of it, again, even for my training, has come from traveling across the U.S. just to spend some time with those various people. So spent some time with Chick Weiss in uh, New York City to learn from him and Bill Culp up in Sacramento at UC Davis to learn from him. So there's a lot of people that are really advanced in the field that are now training others like myself to, to do some of these bigger procedures. And that's great. Yeah, are those people are those people mostly at academic centers? Those like more folk, 100% IR or folk more focused on IR? Yes and no. I think that uh, historically, if you wanted to do heavy IR, you were uh, generally not stuck, but often would gravitate towards academia just because you have the ability to get the specialized cases, get those tertiary referrals to do so. Right. Uh, myself and a couple others are now really moving towards doing this in private practice. And there's definitely a model to be able to do it and to make it affordable and to get those cases. Uh, but it's kind of a slowly growing field. And uh, uh, totally. Do you have like an estimate of how many veterinary IRs there are in the in the country or even in the world? Yeah, it's again, it's one of those things where if you go to a specialty practice, there's probably somebody in that practice that will do some degree of IR, whether it's just uh, something as simple as like a to us a, a simple procedure is a urethral stent, um, just popping one okay. in for an obstructive tumor. Um, and there's a lot of people that will do that and be comfortable doing that. But something like a PAE. That's much more challenging. You got to have the training, got to have the um, kind of equipment and supports that have to do that. So that's probably done at, let's say, fewer than five places across the U.S. Um, but again, yeah. it's something that's definitely growing um, every year. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say that even a minority of 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 human IRs are doing PAE. It's just super yeah. badass that you're doing that. 
So, I mean, you're also involved with some research, right? You know, you'd shared something, uh, you know, a grant that you had gotten recently. Could you tell us about, you know, your research, how you got, you know, your grant, what you're investigating? Yeah, absolutely. So that's, again, kind of one of those really just fortunate things that I've been able to stumble into with my career and that I've always been really passionate about clinical research and um, has really helped me get to where I am just by being involved with some of the the, uh, clinical research in vet med. Um, And so the the practice that I'm at now, it's um, our greater kind of parent company is Ethos Veterinary Health. And um, within Ethos, there's a entire division of the company that's dedicated to clinical research in veterinary medicine called Ethos Discovery. And um, it's great because they allow us and support us and encourage us to do clinical research in private practice. And so um, they really set up the ACUC, the kind of background that's needed to be able to do clinical research. And then um, like you said, just recently, I was uh, very fortunate to get awarded a grant for splenic artery embolizations, um, specifically for thrombocytopenia. And it's it's kind of crazy because things like that, like the idea and my understanding truly came from learning from people on Twitter talking about cases. And uh, it, it sounds crazy, but and a lot of people give me hell for it. But like there's this community of such passionate IR doctors on Twitter that for me has been immensely beneficial because you'll throw out cases, I'll hear about it, I'll kind of learn from that case on there and then do a deep dive into the literature and see that, hey, this is something we could do in dogs. This is something that could be immensely beneficial. And so all of this, again, came from seeing a case of a splenic artery embo and uh, the reactive thrombocytosis. And this is something where dogs actually very commonly get immune-mediated thrombocytopenia and it's something that they can become refractory to standard treatment. So why not do something that's already been experimentally proven in dogs and is done in people on the the actual clinical side in vet med. So cool. It seems like it would be such a fun time in your specialty, which seems like it's relatively early. You know, Aaron and I were were messaging with one of our our partners, Allie, and you know, she said she has this idea of you as as like Charlie Dotter, who's like one of the inventors of IR, uh, just, you know, coming up with these great ideas and and doing them and and it just sounds like a blast. I, I would have so much fun sitting down with you and just like looking at your list of cases, you know, for the last month and going through it. I wish you had that opportunity. But, you know, again, you know, I'd mentioned that there, and you confirmed there aren't a lot of people who do what you do. And I would imagine they're, they're clustered in large cities. So, so how do people find you, you know, for, for an intervention that, you know, you're, you're one of only maybe a dozen people that can do. Yeah. That's, that's honestly one of the hard things, um, especially because it's not, a lot of these very new procedures are new and not well known. So even like a PAE, that's something that uh, I learned from, again, one of my mentors, Bill Culp at UC Davis, who now he's done anywhere from 60 to 100. I have no idea how many he's racked up now. Uh, but he was kind of the one that pioneered that in veteran medicine. And so he definitely has this following. He has this referral for PAEs at his practice because um, he's done it. People see how good they do. And then he will get more referrals because the referring veterinary community knows about it. Um, so when I came to San Diego, it was one of those things where I showed up and I would get referrals for certain things. And then as soon as someone referred me for an IR case, I'm definitely just reaching out to those veterinarians to say, hey, this is what I did for the case. This is why. This is how great the patient's doing. These are the other things that I can do. And even um, for the PAEs, for example, like stepping into this practice, there are three other, there are three medical oncologists that, and a couple of radiation oncologists that often will get the prostate tumors and be frustrated because there's not a lot of good options for them, especially <laughs> when they get huge in dogs. And so um, just like talking to them and saying, hey, I can do this. And then 
make sure that that first case goes really well. And after that first case went well, then they just kept referring more and more. So it's really a slow build, but it's uh, something that it's all about kind of getting to the grind and talking to the referring community about it. You have to excuse my laugh. I thought you were going to say that they got those patients after when like, oh my God, this sucks. The tumors are gone because you did such a great job. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's been great to partner with a lot of those people because again, they now they'll have cases that like, they don't even know what to do, but like, I have this complex case that I'm out of options. Is there anything that is done in the IR field? And often like we can come up with these, these ideas and, and procedures that uh, is commonly done in people, but it's just so early in vet med still. But that's the best part. It's one of my favorite things about this specialty. It is taking a, a very challenging patient or case and just thinking outside of the box and finding a solution. I think, you know, what you're doing is, is kind of emblematic of, of the best of our specialty. And, and, and it's just really what makes it fun. I was just going to say, I think that IR is kind of the perfect field for veterinary medicine in particular, because like our goal is so much different than a, a human oncologist for these cases, because my number one goal is to make sure that that pet, that dog, that cat is minimally affected by whatever they're diagnosed with, meaning that if they have a prostate tumor, I just want them to feel better. I want them to not be affected by that tumor. So we're not out there trying to do a massive resection followed with massive amounts of chemo or radiation. We just want them to feel better and and um, give them that better quality of life. And IR for so many diseases allows that um, with minimally affecting their actual quality of life after treatment. Yeah. And like, for example, with BPH, I, I was just curious to know do you also have the similar options like TERP and Resume and Aquablation, all that stuff? Um, at you know, is that available as well? And 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 PAE is kind of like just the the tertiary option. Or how can you tell us a little bit about BPH? Is it parallel to humans in terms of options? Uh, yes and no. So dogs definitely get BPH, but yeah, ninety nine percent of the dogs that get BPH they're intact, and we neuter them and they get better. So oh. We actually are almost never doing a, a, a PAE for BPH. It's almost always for a tumor. Ah, uh, just because okay. the majority of dogs will get neutered when they're young. If they develop prostatomegaly, again, 90% of the time, it's going to be a, a tumor, not benign okay. hypertrophy. So yeah. um, most of the times that I'm doing a PAE, it's for a tumor and not for BPH. Um, and if they do get BPH, we just neuter them and, and that's not a, a problem. But then from that option standpoint, it definitely is a... Uh, conversation with the owner because if I if I see a dog with a prostate tumor to come talk to me, we'll go through a significant number of options, but it's typically limited to a, definitely a PAE. We'll talk about a resection if they want to consider like a prostatectomy in those cases, yeah, or considering something like uh, SBRT, or if they again really just want to go palliative, just consider an indwelling uh, urethral stent. So definitely have a a row of options, um, but it depends on the client's goals. So does it, see, it It sounds like most of the IR that's being practiced in veterinary medicine is focused on IO, like interventional oncology. Is it, would that be fair statement? Yeah, I would say the it's kind of a mix and it, it really depends on the cases that you're seeing. So yeah. the again, I think the majority of people that are doing IR truly is cardiovascular. So I we see. have a, and that's where it's kind of interesting in vet med because there's no there's no subdivision or there's no training that's specific for IR. It's typically you go into your primary specialty, which is cardiology or surgery or internal medicine. And then from there, you kind of pick up IR skills and treatments that are for the diseases that you see. So 
there are a ton of cardiologists that do cardiovascular IR, like things like uh, PDAs or patent ductus arterioles. There's a lot of congenital malformations are treated with IR. They do tons of balloon valvuloplasties, things like that. And so um, that's the cases they see. So that's how they use IR to treat those cases. As a surgical oncologist, I'm seeing all of these cancer cases. So that's where Got all it. my references are coming from. Um, and then similarly, if you're an internal medicine specialist, then you're seeing nasopharyngeal stenosis that you're going to balloon or stent, or you're seeing kind of a lot of urogenital diseases that you're going to be doing ballooning or stenting. So it really depends on the, the specialty that you're specialty. coming from. Interesting. So in the surgical and oncology world, you know, what are the more common procedures that you're offering? Uh, from an IO perspective? Or whatever. I mean, what, you know, what, what does your practice look like on the, the IR side? What are the more common things that you yeah, do? Yeah. So a lot of ours, definitely mine is very heavy into oncology cases. So um, a lot yeah. of embolizations, a lot of chemo embolizations. Um, we do a lot of stenting for obstruction. So if it's like a a cable obstruction, we'll do a cable stent. If it's a ureteral obstruction, we'll do a uh, percutaneous ureteral stents, things like that. Um, so it's kind of a mix of either closing down vessels or shutting down tumors or opening up tubes, yeah. um, which again, it's very similar to most IRs, but kind of more depending on, again, client's goals and how the patient is doing. And then we also have a pretty significant number of kind of developmental congenital diseases. So for instance, just uh, on Friday, my last IR case, I did a um, intrahepatic portosystemic shunt coil embolization. So it's it's kind of like the opposite of a TIPS where I'm uh, just shutting down a shunt. Yeah. A lot of dogs will develop with shunts within their liver. And uh, traditionally, we'd have to dissect into the liver, kind of close that down. And it was a very morbid procedure. Uh, but again, they took tips from human IR and they developed a coil embolization. So I just go down the jugular vein and essentially coil off the shunt and then the dog gets a normal blood flow eventually. So kind of a pretty wide spectrum of things that we're doing. Is portal hypertension an issue in cats and dogs at all? I mean, they're not drinkers and they're not, I mean. Yeah. You don't know that, Aaron. <laughs> they're probably so. I, yeah. I mean, Bratz's dog was a drinker, of course. <laughs> yeah, I don't have a dog, damn you. We we do see some portal hypertension, but um, they they generally don't get tips. It's usually not something that, like usually if they're in that severe of end-stage liver disease, the portal hypertension is not what's going to get them. So it's often not something we consider treating. You're treating a lot of dogs and cats, uh, right? So it sounds like, do you also treat horses, cat, larger animals? It's, I mean, Pretty rarely. So like yeah. um, my practice is only cats and dogs. So okay. uh, that's like all of the patients I'm seeing. That's all the patients I'm getting referrals for. There are some really fun things that like uh, the San Diego Zoo, for instance, they'll have a crazy case and they'll talk to me or someone else in the field and we'll do intervention for a zoo animal. So just a couple of weeks ago, um, oh my God. a patient from the San Diego Zoo that had idiopathic renal hematuria. So we did renal sclerotherapy on a dick dick, which is a tiny antelope. So oh, um, wow. we kind of get some of those fun cases and, and that is awesome. try to make things work, but it, it's pretty heavily in dogs and cats. When I was a fellow at, at Penn, I got so angry because I found out that, that one of my attendings had gone to the veterinary school and did, uh, a uterine artery embolization on an elephant. And I was absolutely livid that, you know, he didn't think to invite any of us to participate. It was like, it was just legendary. I would love to yeah. do that. One of the questions that our, our friend Allie had as a very good question is, 
you know, how translational is one procedure, you know, from one animal to another, you know, you know, first of all, between dogs and cats, but to the animal you just mentioned that I never heard of, like, I mean, you know, can you doing a PAE on that animal, tell me what it's like doing the same procedure on different animals. Yeah, it's, it's always an adventure. I think it's, I, you guys, I assume it's the same for you, but IR is one of those things where you go into a procedure and you have to have uh, plan A, B, C, D all the way down to Z because you yeah. don't know what issue is going to run into, what what is going to work for this particular patient, what wires, what catheters are going to be needed. And so um, it's it's always variable, even just going from a, a PAE and uh, one dog to another. The anatomy is never the same. The sizing is often a huge restriction. So like it's to me, it's relatively easy if I do a PAE in a 20 kg dog and I can get by and I I don't expect that to be as frustrating. But if I have a five kg dog, that's, yeah, if I have like a, I've done it on a, a three, four kg dog and that is just a, an no exercise way. in frustration because you, we have to get pretty small <laughs> with those catheters and wires. And again, the anatomy can be so different and especially in IO, the anatomy is always so altered by the tumor itself. So again, it's yeah. one of those things where you can do all the prep you want and you get in there and you find a surprise. And so it's, it's getting good at being adaptable in those situations. And I'm sure you're dealing with relatively advanced disease with a lot of mm -hmm. these. I mean, it's not like the dog can say, it's like, oh man, my pelvis hurts. Yeah. Like, you're probably seeing big tumors, big tumors, a small dog. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of where IR is such a good option is because uh, like if I see a dog with a small prostate tumor, I'm going to recommend a prostatectomy because I have such a better tumor control with that. Uh, but if I see a dog with this huge tumor that's already outside the capsule that's going up into the lumbar spine, then a prostatectomy is not going to benefit that dog. So that's where the PAE really comes in to be of a benefit to them. And so we very sadly or unfortunately do see a lot of late stage tumors, a lot of late stage cancers. And so IR really helps for those patients. And um, again, very similar to, to humans, we also see patients with comorbidities with these diseases. So like if I have a dog that's six with a liver tumor, 100% I'm going to recommend we go in for a liver lobectomy. But if I have a dog that is 13 that has diabetes and uh, hypertension, then I'm not going to want to jump in and do an invasive procedure. And so a uh, chemoembolization is, is going to be kind of the top of my recommendations just based off of what, what is best for the patient. Uh, in terms of equipment, we, we kind of, you were talk, touching on some of the catheters and stuff. Is it a lot of the same stuff that we're using that, you know, you used up at, with Shamar up in Minnesota? I mean, same companies, Boston Sci. Medtronics, the Cook Medicals, are they supplying with the same equipment? Yeah, it's it's essentially all the same stuff. We like very admittedly, we try to get things as cheap as possible. So it was yeah. great when I was at Minnesota because Shamar could just come over with a catheter that costs a thousand bucks that we wouldn't be able to use. But if it fell off the table, then it's something that we could use for our cases. Uh, and so yeah. the equipment definitely is a hindrance in a lot of cases. And so we we look into kind of the just recently expired equipment. We look into the stuff that is uh, getting resold because a, a hospital shut down and they're wanting gear to their inventory. And so um, we our, our purchasing team knows that if I have a case or something, I'll send them this list of kind of crazy catheters and things, and they'll just go about trying to find those as cheap as possible. Uh, but absolutely, there there is definitely a, a lot of this is just the same equipment that's used uh, that Shamar taught me to use for his cases, I'm using in my cases. And then if we can get it for cheaper, we do what we can to do so. Yeah. What about imaging equipment? Do you guys have like your angio suite? Can you tell us about that? 
Good question. Yeah, so um, right now I'm just using like a OEC 9900. So it's it's kind of an older mobile C-arm. We, there are a couple of places in our hospital, very fortunately, is in the process of building a bigger hospital. So I uh, have been promised I'll get a ceiling mounted, um, kind of hopefully something like a Philips FD20. Uh, but that's kind of the dream suite that there are very few of those in the U.S. So most of it is just kind of a mobile C-arm that um, we use for a variety of procedures, whether it's orthopedics or um, these IR procedures. Nice. So also, you know, with the catheters and equipment and everything, I mean, again, like these are variably sized patients and, and long catheters and wires. That That's probably a big challenge. I mean, I'm I'm really envisioning, you know, doing the PAE on the three to four kilogram dog. And I'm, I'm just kind of blown away. And it reminds me of doing, you know, cases on babies when I was a chop and, you know, you move the catheter back, you know, feels just like a tiny bit and, and all of a sudden you're back into the aorta. Yeah. Uh, and it, I, I can only imagine how frustrating those cases must be. Yeah, oh, for um, sure. And yet again, the smaller they are, the harder they are. So especially like cats, again, it, it's, it's incredibly hard to do an intervention in some of the cat patients. Um, so it's not as common in cats and, and we have to adapt and do some crazy things. So like just for reference, um, we do a fair number of ureteral stents in dogs, and that's kind of easy because you can get by from a two French to a six French ureteral, like a, a double J ureteral stent in a dog. Um, but a cat, like if you try to get a two French in, it's it's not going to fit because their their native ureter, a normal non-dilated cat ureter, is 0.3 millimeters. So, like to oh to God. try doing an intervention on that is pretty impossible. But how do you deal with the length, the different lengths? I yeah. mean, do you just have a shit ton of different lengths available on your shelves or do you have to modify Yeah, no, I, everything, like, I have to get one of every size if I'm going to do something and kind of keep uh, one of every size in stock. And I'm often feet away from my patients, meaning that when I was with Shamar, we were like, you're right up at the access site. But um, for these yeah. patients, if I'm doing a carotid intervention, I'm going to be like, three, four feet away from this chihuahua uh, just because that's that's the catheters that I have to work with. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So we're talking about equipment that, you know, disposables, equipment. We know this stuff's expensive. Your super specialized training. How do you, how do you determine the cost of a procedure? Yeah, that's, it's, it's definitely challenging and, and uh, sure. vet med costs are definitely rising and it's hard to try and do thing, anything like on a, a cheap version for these patients. And so everything that I'm doing definitely is insanely expensive. And um, unfortunately, it does preclude a lot of clients from being able to get these treatments. I'm very fortunate in San Diego, we have a client base that um, fortunately can afford a lot of this. But again, just to to get a CT angio, it's a couple thousand dollars to do the procedure. It's a couple thousand dollars of hospitalization, anesthesia, aftercare, it's a couple thousand dollars. And so all of that definitely adds up. Um, there are a lot of cases that it's very fortunate if the if the pet is insured, then um, we have the ability to kind of ignore costs a little bit more. Um, but that's one of those things when I, if I have a case with a prostate tumor, I'm talking to them about this is a cost just for the staging. This is a cost for uh, prostatectomy. This is a cost for a PEA. This is a cost for um, SBRT if you want to do it. This is the monthly cost of chemo. And we have to be very upfront about that because each step of the way, like if, if we spend too much money on staging, then we don't have any leftover for intervention. And so um, it definitely yeah. goes into our care discussions. Are there pet insurances that cover any of this stuff or is it mostly cash? Yeah, no. Uh, if a pet is insured, most of the companies, most of the insurance companies are going to cover all of this. There's not 
once a pet is insured, there's nowhere near the amount of restrictions as there are in, in human insurance. So mm. if I do something, even if it's never been described in a dog before, the insurance company often will still cover that because um, there's no like, there's no standard of care that insurance is going to or is not going to sure. cover. Well, that's pretty cool. God, yeah, that is cool. You don't have to do peer reviews and all of the bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, Michael, anything else you want to talk? Yeah, I do. I, I got a little bit more. So, you know, this is a obviously a, a changing field uh, and a developing field, and and you're obviously a part of that of the development. I'm I'm just kind of curious, you know, what the horizon looks like for vet veterinarian IR and, and if there's anything that's you know kind of come down the pipe that you're excited about. Yeah, I think the the things that are now most exciting to me and some other people, I, the again the cardio guys are doing some incredible things. Like there are uh again one of my mentors at CSU, Colorado State, Brian Scanson, like doing valve replacements uh via IR is just insane to me. And he's doing some really incredible things. And then similarly, there's a lot of us that are now getting into ablations. And I think that, uh, again, for veterinary patients, I think that's going to be huge for us once we can really refine it for our patients. So, uh, for instance, another thing that I've uh, started in San Diego down here is to do um, radiofrequency ablation for bone cancer in dogs. Um, It's one of those things where, again, our number one goal for these patients is to give them the best quality of life for as long as we can. And right now, if a dog gets a bone tumor of their limb, the standard of care is amputation followed by chemo. And a lot of dogs do phenomenal with an amputation, but that's one of the things that the the holy grail is if we can avoid an amputation and still get the same tumorcidal outcome, that's kind of exactly what we want. If we can keep our four-legged dogs four-legged, that's going to be the the ultimate goal. And so uh, there's a few of us that are now starting to do ablation. So again, it's it's a crazy small field, but um, Vincent Wavre is a guy, uh, he was originally in at OSU. He's now over in Europe now, but he started doing some microwave ablation in dogs as a form of limb spare for osteosarcoma. Um, learned some things from him, and now I'm starting to do some RFA and cementoplasty for, uh, again, kind of appendicular limb-based uh, bone tumors. And um, it's one of the crazy exciting things where I... Like recently had a dog, we did an RFA within days, the dog is back to walking like he never had the tumor there at all. And um, we can get them into chemo, we can get them into kind of the the care that they need without this affecting their quality of life. And so I, I do think that's going to be huge as we start to learn how to do ablations more and, and um, really refine it for our patients. Does like vert, vertebroplasty or kyphoplasty exist in animals? Do they, I, I imagine they don't get compression fractures like humans do, right? Yeah. So because they're quadrupeds, not bipeds, right. we don't have the yeah. same kind of compression on the spine. But yeah, it's, yeah Aaron, they don't walk the same, Aaron. <laughs> the, the My cat walk does. The... My cat will get up on two legs. <laughs> yeah. But it, it's, it's one of those things where, again, all of what we're doing is so driven by what you guys are doing. And, and no joke, I was listening to Backtable about kyphoplasties and cementoplasties. And you had, I don't remember who it was, but talking about kind of battling with RT, if you do the like biopsy, ablation, cementoplasty before RT or after and kind of working with those radiation oncologists to get this hammered out. Um, and that that's one of the things that really drove down to me that this is something that we need to start doing. And so after hearing that on Backtable, then I went, did a deep dive in the literature. And again, you kind of can adapt that to vet med just based off of uh, kind of learning these techniques and seeing what you guys are doing as well. Man, I think I speak for everybody. Like keep sharing these cases on Twitter, man, because... I'm loving them, and I'm, and I'm not the only one. I, I just 
I was blown away with that PA you shared, and and I hope you keep doing that. Yeah, yeah. for sure. I, I, it's it's something that again there there's not a ton of us, but uh, there there's a a good vocal few of us that love doing this, and so the more people that know about it definitely benefits everyone. The the other thing that would be cool, Chris, and I'm sure you're you have limited bandwidth, but you know we just had our SIR conference. But it'd be cool to have you come and show a bunch of case, you know, IR, IO cases at a big conference. You know yeah. what I mean? I, I, yeah. Anybody, has anybody done that that you know of uh, in the veterinary world? Uh, not that I know of. I, I I would love to. Again, I think that we have so much to learn. And, and the other thing is that it's only through these connections that really allowed this to happen, meaning that um, it was because of Shamar Young, uh, an interventional radiologist, that uh, kind of took time with a pestering young veterinary surgery resident that uh, like allowed me to tag along and learn out of these things. And now that we can uh, adapt this to veterinary patients, it's the same thing. So if there are anyone that has a MD DVM connection, it really improves both fields because again, we can learn from you guys. And then the other big thing is really using um, dogs as a dogs or cats as a model for human disease. So um, again, just from posting that PAE on Twitter, I had someone reach out to ask if we wanted to kind of work together on a preclinical study for PAE embolization using dogs as a, a natural model uh, of, of cancer. And uh, again, those are the things that if we can get funding from some of the bigger granting agencies on the human side to do some of these really awesome procedures in dogs, it, it benefits everyone because we, we can then give that high standard of care high quality of care to our patients and we can get the data, we can kind of um, see what happens for some of these things um, that benefits, again, both the human medicine, human medicine and federal medicine side of things. Absolutely. Was that uh, Nanish Parikh that reached out to you? Yeah. Yeah. Was it really? <laughs> I, I'll have to check. Uh, oh, the, <laughs> that would I be said, amazing. Oh, it was nine. Yeah, there were uh, oh, it was nine. three or four That's people great. that kind of contacted me. You're, you're ahead of the, you're, you're absolutely right. And you know, what you're doing, uh, you know, the PAE cases, you're ahead of the game. You're ahead of what we're doing in humans. And I completely agree. I think we could all learn from your experience. Yeah, yeah it's good. And, and again, so much of it, like we, we are translating what you guys are doing to our patients. And there's a lot of things that we may be doing that, uh, Again, we are limited by finances. We're limited by certain things. And so we've kind of adapted and, and can uh, yeah. share some of those, I guess, cheaper ways of doing things, uh, even if that's helpful. Hey, that's important. Yeah. And on the on the ablation side, it sounds like uh, Steve Yevich would be a good person for you to talk to. Um, he's doing some crazy stuff down at MD Anderson and oh, nice. uh, in all different, yeah, all different bones. And, you know, so uh, he has so much experience and like really his practice is all about bone ablation. So yeah. he'd be a good contact. But do you have you you've probably know Sean Tutton there at UCSD. Do you know him? Yeah, the the name is definitely familiar. I haven't met him yet. Yeah. Um, but it's one of those things that I I came to San Diego during COVID, so there hasn't been a ton of uh, uh, good, meet yeah. and greets with some of the the MDs at UCSD. Oh yeah, there're tons of them. My uh my former co-fellow Quinn Meisinger is nice. there. Yeah. There's lots of great people there. Yeah. yeah. So well, look, man, thank you for doing this. We really appreciate you joining us. And this is awesome. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's been my honor. I think, again, the the more connections we can make with, with vets and, and human IRs, it definitely helps everyone. I'm with you. And thanks to our listeners for joining us. Aaron, do you have anything else for us? No, but Chris, much respect for, for you. And uh, it's funny, I was pre-vet and uh, into college until I realized that you can't get into vet school with a 3.5 GPA. You got to be 4.0 and above. Right? 
And now, but I also worked in a kennel for a year for a good, good amount of time. And, uh, so many dog bites that I just was like, I don't know if I can do this. So kudos to you, man. It's, I know it's a long, arduous training process and you guys are super sharp. Every vet I, I met was super sharp. And, um, so yeah, I just love what you're doing and, uh, let us know if we can do anything for you at back table. Yeah, for sure. Again, I appreciate it. Yeah, we need to we need to find a way to do another one of these. We'll we'll find the right topic. Yeah. But the more the word fun. gets out, the the better. And again, there there are some really phenomenal veterinary IR specialists that I would love to connect just to to hear some of those other perspectives. Because um, there again, there are a lot of guys that uh, have built this profession and and have done it in partnership with so many human interventional radiologists. Cool. Well, thanks, Chris. Appreciate it. Yeah, of course. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team lead is Karen Gannon with support from Caleb Hodson, Josh McWhirter, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Anne Dang. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.